Good morning. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. While you're doing that, welcome to the lower room uh, instead of the upper room. But uh, it's, uh, you can see how, even though as, as intimate as upstairs was, it's, you know, the amount of people that we have, this really fits us well. Even the early service was kind of packed in here. So it's good that we have room to grow. And uh, so anyway, I'm glad to see the efforts that uh, Neil created all those with the help of some of the staff people. The little walls kind of create a little bit of intimacy and um, the floor uh, protection. It kind of makes it feel like a room instead of a gym. So I, I like some of those efforts. Appreciate all the people that put that effort into it. Uh, I want to tell you another thing, which is uh, tonight I have a Bible study that I teach uh, every Sunday night. We've had about three weeks off because of family day on the other campus, and then we've had our core group meetings. Um, but tonight it starts back. Tonight, uh, for the, and for the next 10 weeks, we have a special teacher uh, who is Tana Fleming, who's from the uh, other campus. She is the person who actually began to teach me about the seven feasts that you find in Leviticus 23. And she's going to, I've asked her to come over and do this for us. So for the next 10 weeks, she's going to teach about the seven feasts. If you know, there's seven feasts that God gave to Israel that they would uh, yearly, they would cycle through these. It keeps bringing their remembrance back to God. So you have Passover, you have um, right after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you have the Feast of First Fruits. You have Pentecost, which we're studying now. Then in the fall, you have um, the Feast of Trumpets, you have the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, each one of them speaks to a historical event. It speaks to a prophetical event. It speaks to the life of a believer as you come to know Jesus, and Jesus is actually prefigured in every single one of them. It's a fascinating study. It's, it's enlightening, and it really makes all of Scripture come alive, and especially makes the Gospels come alive, because when you begin to see the seven feasts, you then see why the New Testament, especially the Gospel writers, use the language that they do because it's actually seated in those uh, experiences that all Jews would be cycling through. And you get to see that Jesus actually fulfills each one of them. He died on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He rose from the dead on first fruits, exact days of the calendar. And Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes exactly on Pentecost, which then gives us kind of like this calendar to look forward to of the fall feast which is talking about the return of Christ and the judgment of God and then the eternal kingdom of God prefigured with tabernacles. So if that interests you for the next 10 weeks, she's going to be teaching that. I'll be up there as well. We meet upstairs in that, as I'm looking at it, the much larger room that's over to my left. So as soon as you come out the stairwell, so it's the one that immediately on the left when you walk down that hallway, uh, we go from 5 to roughly 6.15, just depends on how many questions. You will have an opportunity to ask questions and kind of dialogue in that as well. So if you're interested in that, it starts back tonight. After that, I'll be teaching again, and we'll be going through the book of James verse by verse. So if you're looking for some extra study, that's what we'll be, and we'll be going through the book of James for our next biblical study. But for this morning, we are here in the book of Acts again. We're looking at the second part of Peter's sermon here. Uh, Neil introduced this last week, and we saw the first part where, where um, Peter goes to uh, the Old Testament Joel, and he begins to quote from this passage that prefigures the uh, happening of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and how it was going to fill both men and women, and they were going to prophesy, and they are going to speak these wonders of God. And we see that uh, all that happens there exactly the way uh, the prophet Joel 
prophesied that, and Peter was making the connection for the crowd. If you remember, as the Holy Spirit came, all of those who received the Holy Spirit began to speak in other languages. And everybody there heard their own language. Not only just heard their language, but heard it in their mother language. In other words, their actual dialect. They heard it. Heard it spoken clearly. This amazed everybody who was there, but they had two responses. The first response was, what does all this mean? And the second response was not a question, but a statement, these men are drunk. And so you saw as Peter begins to address the crowd, he addresses both of those perspectives. The first one, he starts with the latter. These men are not drunk, it's 9 a.m. Okay? So he, that's all he says to them too. He addresses that, he moves on, and then the rest of his sermon, he's addressing that first question of what does this mean? And again, he goes back to the Old Testament, uh, he, he looks at prophets, uh, and he also looks at the Psalms and prophecies that you find there. So the first one we looked at was Joel, so today we're going to look at the next two Old Testament passages that he brought up there as a testament to who Jesus was and what everyone was experiencing there. And those actually come from the book of Psalms. So the bulk of Peter's sermon was very centralized. When you think about the fact that he segues from everything that everyone is experiencing to how Jesus is connected to it or how it all points to Jesus. That is ultimately what Peter does with this sermon here. He focuses on the action of God through the events of those last few days of Jesus' earthly life. So he points to the crucifixion, he points to the resurrection, and he points to the ascension. That's where he quotes from these two passages from the book of Psalms, and he emphasizes uh, the divine nature of Jesus, both his humanity and his divine nature. So let's look at the first three verses to get us started this morning. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a perfect picture or a perfect explanation of the gospel that we have right here. I mean, this is probably one of the most concise and yet powerful demonstrations of the gospel that Peter puts together right here. He starts with emphasizing the dual nature of Christ, if you notice that there. He both relates to his humanity and his deity. Look at what it says in verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So he gives that Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because you know him. He was born in Nazareth. You can go find his parents, or at least his mom is still alive at this time. You can go find his brothers and sisters. You can go find the people that he grew up around. He was a guy who was born. He had a family. He lived. He grew up. He didn't just walk out of the mountain one day as Messiah. He grew up around everybody. They can attest to his character. They can attest to who he was and that he was a real person, Jesus of Nazareth. The second thing, a man, he calls him a man, but then he goes on to qualify him as not just any ordinary man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he's saying, yes, you know, this is a, a normal man. He grew up, he was born, he was raised by a family. He has brothers and sisters. He has a community they grew up in. But yet you yourselves know that this wasn't an ordinary man, that you know by the demonstration of his life, the miracles that you saw. I mean, 
as far as we know, in all of history, there was no one who had ever been healed of leprosy except for Nathan in the Old Testament, and he was the guy that, he was a Gentile. We don't have any account of any Jews ever being healed of leprosy before Jesus begins to heal lepers in the gospel. But not only does he heal lepers, he frees up demoniacs. Not just the regular old someone's kind of oppressed by a demon, but we're talking about people who were infiltrated, people who were chained to graves because they were so dangerous to other people. And, and yet Jesus seems to not be uh, messed around. Uh, he doesn't seem to be affected by any of them. He just walks right in. He speaks directly to them, throws them into a herd of pigs at one point. I mean, he has power over demons. He has power over disease. He has power over the affirmities and illnesses of, of being lame, you know, being blind. And no one had seen that kind of power. Even being able to feed all of the people with just a little bit of bread, that all goes back to God in the Old Testament. God is the one who was able to do all of those things in the Old Testament, and it was only God and only through the power of God that you would see these kind of things done. Yet, he says, you yourselves can attest to this. You know, you lived in the day and time. You've heard these stories. Some of you have even experienced them yourselves. You know what this man has done. I think this is important to realize what Peter's pointing out, that Jesus was a man, and yet Jesus was God. It's the beautiful balance that Peter really strikes in this sermon. Um, the fact that Jesus, again, being the highlight central of what Peter is actually relating to us here, uh, is man and God is one of the most foundational um, presuppositions that you have to have when you walk into Christianity. Because if Jesus isn't fully man, then he didn't die as a man. He, didn't, he couldn't die for our sins if he's not a man like we are. And yet, if he isn't fully God, then he's just some person who God is working through. He is fully God. He is fully man. I love how Oswald Chambers says it. He says, Jesus Christ reveals not an embarrassed God, not a confused God, not a God who stands apart from the problems, but one who stands in the thick of the whole thing. What he's saying there is that the incarnation of Christ is one of the most important aspects of Christianity because it says that God is familiar with our sufferings and our difficulties. Why? Because he came in flesh and blood and he lived a life like we live. He lived in poverty. His family was not wealthy. He was one who didn't have a home. He wandered around everywhere he went. So he knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to not be trusted. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused. That's why the New Testament writers say that he was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be human, which makes our relationship with Jesus so much more rich because we know he is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be human. And it tells us, too, about how much God cares about you and I. He's not just some God who is aloof and far off, unfamiliar with our sufferings and our, our difficulties, but he's a God who's close to us. The scripture says that God is close to those who are brokenhearted. So again, this really helps us to understand the God who we worship, that he's not some God that's far off on a hill, but he's a God who has come close to us, and he most specifically comes close to us in the person and incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in these next few verses, we see Peter highlighting the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection and ultimately the ascension as well. We also see him balance this juxtaposition between the sovereignty of God and human free will. It's actually amazing all of the difficult theologies that Peter just beautifully balances here in this sermon. Look how it continues in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up, look what he says here, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan, not your plan. God determined this from the foundations of the world, not you. God was in control this whole time, not you. But then look what he says. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what is he saying there? He's saying, you didn't mess up God's plan because this was God's plan from the beginning, yet you are 100% accountable for what you did. And there is the incredible difficulty of the sovereignty of God and yet human free will. He's saying by your own human free will, you chose to kill him because that was your hearts. And yet God knew your hearts and he used that to accomplish his will, which Jesus had to die as a sacrifice of sin. Therefore, you haven't messed up God's plan and yet you're fully accountable for everything that you've done. That's a picture of the sovereignty of God and human free will all in the same package. What a beautiful picture. And then he just moves on, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to that definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this sermon that, preacher, that uh, Peter is preaching is incredible in the sense of all of these topics that he hits, that he balances them perfectly, and then he brings it to this ultimate call of response or conclusion. He balances God's control and man's responsibility, which we saw. We also see that he balances Jews and Gentiles here. He says that you are the one who killed him. How did you kill him? By the hands of lawless men. So in other words, the Jews weren't the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. The Jews weren't the ones who, who beat him with the rods, with the cat of nine tails. Uh, they weren't the ones who punched him in the face. It was the Gentiles. It was the Romans, the soldiers. It was ultimately Pilate who gave it. Whether he wants to wash his hands of it or not, he's the one who gave the order to go ahead and crucify Jesus. And so what Peter is balancing here is both Jews and Gentiles are guilty for Jesus' death. Why? The Jews were the ones who put him up for it, the Gentiles who were willing to go right along with the plan and have him executed. Now, this balance is what strikes at the hearts of those who are listening to Peter give this address right here, and it actually brings them to this deep-seated conviction that they all feel. But before we see the response of the crowd, um, I think we see that Peter doesn't just report his opinion. What he does is he backs all of this up with Scripture. So he doesn't just give his opinion out there and then call the people to response. He tells what he knows from his own experience and from what they've experienced, but then he backs it up with Scripture. And that's the next thing we see in verse 25. For David says, and again, he's quoting here from Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. That's the key right there. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on in verse 29. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, that actually came through the prophet Nathan who spoke that to David, that you would have an everlasting kingdom and one of your descendants will always be on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter goes back to this psalm, and it's a psalm of David. And David is saying here that there is a a time where his body would not see corruption. Well, what Peter points to is David couldn't have been talking about himself, because if he's talking about himself, we know where his grave is. His body is still in there. He did die. He is decaying. So he couldn't have been speaking about himself, so he must have been speaking about the one through the prophet Nathan was prophesied about who would come, who would never vacate the throne of David. And so that's the connection that he's making there. And I think verse 27 is the key that Peter's picking up on here. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. So again, this is pointing to Jesus Christ. But Peter brings an application and an explanation to this as well. He basically says, everything that you are seeing, everything that you're hearing today is because Jesus is still alive. It's because his body is not in a tomb. You can't take me to where he's buried right now and find a body. It's empty. We all know where they put the body. There's nothing there. He did not lie in corruption. He rose from the dead. His grave is empty. And so... Everything that you see and witness here today is Jesus continuing to work through us. All the power and signs and wonders that you saw him do that you can attest to, you're now attesting to through us because we are his followers. You are the witnesses of that. I love the progression that Peter points out. We are witnesses of his resurrection. You are witnesses to his miracles. And now you are witnesses to everything that you've seen here today, which is that Jesus is still alive and still working through those who are his. Peter then moves on to the second psalm. And this time he's quoting from Psalm 110, also a psalm of David. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So after quoting from this Psalm, Peter makes the point that this can't be referring to David. Why? Because David never ascended into heaven. But what do they know? Jesus did. Matter of fact, just a few verses back, we can go back and look that they attested to this themselves. They were witnesses not only to the resurrection of Jesus, they were also witnesses to the ascension of Jesus. Jesus did ascend to heaven. Jesus did take the right hand of the throne of God. Peter makes this point with these two Psalms, among others that he probably related, because in a few moments you'll see where it says that he spoke many other words to them. These are just the two that Luke picks up on and uses here concisely. And notice here that, that what 
Peter is really pointing out is that when you go back to these Old Testament passages, they don't make sense until you factor in Jesus. And I want to just tell you right there, that is a great principle that you always need to take and hold close to your heart. The Old Testament does not make sense until you factor into Jesus. If you come to our study on Sunday nights, you'll find out the seven feasts don't make sense until you factor in Jesus. What you're going to find is that the law of Moses doesn't make sense until you factor in Jesus. The sacrificial system does not make sense until you factor in Jesus. But when you factor in Jesus, you see that all of this was pointing to that. God knew they couldn't keep the law. God knew that animals, goats, and and, and heifers were not good enough for sacrificial to forgive sins. He knew all of that because it was all pointing to a greater day. And what Peter is saying is that day has come because Jesus is God in the flesh and he's shown us how to live. He's shown us how to follow the law and now he has empowered us to do it. And you are witnesses to the fact that he's not a normal human being. You've seen that he's doing things that only God can do. And you heard the confessions that he made about himself. And you are seeing that his grave is empty. And you are seeing that he is still working through us. Why is he not physically here? Because he ascended into heaven. We saw it with our own eyes. Well, how can we trust them? Every one of these guys goes to their death because of that confession. They die martyr's death. Now you think, if we're, this is a made-up story. I, I can make up some stories, but I ain't going to die for any of them. But unless they were completely convinced that what they saw was real and the things that they were preaching, they could attest to by the experiences that they had, that's why they were willing to go to their death. Again, um, I think there's a beautiful picture here in the crowd And I want to take a moment just to kind of point this out. This is really had to do with a message per se, but I think it's a bigger application to it. Do you remember when the crowd says, um, what does all this mean? I think that that is a way that you should always start any Bible study that you ever start, okay? Whatever study you're doing, whatever book it is, whatever verse you're studying, you should always start with the question, what does this mean? That's what we call exegesis. It's saying... Not what does this mean to me, but what does this mean in its original context? What was this author thinking when he wrote this? What images did he have in his mind? Not what images come to my mind when I read it. What images came to his mind when he was writing it? What was happening in the culture? What happens before this passage? What happens after this passage? What happens earlier in the Bible before this book? What happens after this book? That's called reading into it the full context of the passage that you're looking at. And when you do that and you start off with that perspective, you're going to find the actual meaning behind that passage. Now, what do you do with it? The same thing that happens with this crowd. We're going to see it in a moment. You're going to ask the second question, which is, what shall we do? What does this mean? What shall we do? That right right there is really good biblical exposition. Why? Because you're finding out what it means to the original author, and then you're saying, how do I now apply that to my own context? The way we get really bad theology is that we take passages out of their context, and we read them immediately into our reality, and it doesn't fit. Why? Because we didn't do the due diligence to go and find out what did it mean to them, and we didn't look at it in the larger scope of all of Scripture. I can take some passages out and create theology But when I start bringing other passages in, they actually defeat the purpose of what I've created there because I didn't look at the totality of Scripture 
I only looked at one place. And you're going to see that even in these passages with some of the verses that come here at the end. Anyway, as we look back at the passage that Peter's preaching this sermon, he brings in these two psalms. Notice the mention of the titles Lord and Christ. Peter ascribes these to Jesus. Now, I think this is intentional, and it's really intentional from this point forward in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is called Lord, and he's called Christ many times. We don't hear um, Son of God as much. We also don't hear God referred to as Father all that much. Now, there are passages, but not nearly as much as we heard it in the Gospels. The reason is because of the context, because the Caesars, the emperors of the Roman Empire, they are the ones who are ascribing to themselves deity. They're saying that they are gods, and they are demanding worship as gods. Not only that, they're going further than that. They're demanding to be called Lord, and you would have to actually have to say, Caesar is Lord before you light some incense towards him, before you could even walk into the marketplace to buy and sell goods. They required this declaration. The reason you see this so much in the New Testament is because the New Testament writers are defying that, saying, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And here Peter says that he is Lord and the Christ. Now that right there is also coming to those two audiences. Lord would have spoken very profoundly to the Gentiles. Christ would have spoken very profoundly to the Jews. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. That is the Christ. And he says he is now Lord and Christ. Full of this picture of Peter painting this incredible backdrop to all that was happening in front of them. He brings in the Old Testament. He points forward to the day and time which they're all living in. He brings in the reality that Jesus is fully man, Jesus is fully God, that Jesus understands that God has come close, that God is still alive, his grave is empty, he has infiltrated his followers and is still working through all of them. I think the grand illusion here today that we have that can apply to any of us is threefold. Number one, one thing we know about Peter was that he was full of scripture. He was full of God's word. The reason he keeps going back to it, he points back to uh, a minor prophet. He points back to the Psalms. Um, there are other times when he was looking to um, install someone to take Judas's place that had been vacated by his death. He goes and he, he calls out scripture and says scripture points to this. We know that Peter was full of scripture. The second thing we know is the scripture tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, that the Holy Spirit had come on him. Don't we see the radical transformation of this guy? I mean, in just like a, a month and a half, he's gone from like denying he even knows who Jesus is to stand and proclaiming who Jesus is boldly in front of the nations. Okay, so that's something powerful. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And notice this, and this is the application. When you are full of the scripture and you are full of the Holy Spirit, your mouth will be full of Jesus. In other words, what will come out of your mouth and what you will be constantly attesting to is who Jesus is. It will happen in your conversations very naturally. I'm not talking about taking your King James Bible and beating people over the head with it and just annoying everybody that you work with. I'm talking about being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and being that Christ-like servant to the people around you to the point they look at you and go, why are you so different than everybody else? And there's your opportunity. And out comes your mouth. Man, let me tell you, 
this is who I was. This is who I am today, and this is because of Jesus. This is how he changed my life. You can go back to the Old Testament and see that God loves us, and he's pointing towards this. You can go to the Gospels and see who Jesus was and how he lived, how it became a model, and that's what I'm trying to model myself after. But, you know, it also tells us in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit empowers us. And so the difference that you see in me and what I used to be is not attributed to my efforts. It is attributed to the power of God working through me. You know what happens when you are full of Scripture? When you are full of the Spirit, you will be full of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Is that your life? Is that your experience? And if it's not, you have to ask yourself a few things. Number one, am I really a believer of Jesus? That's first and foundational. Now, again, I'm not saying all this to make you all question your salvation because there is a second to this. But the first thing you have to start for is, am I really committed to Christ? Have I really given myself over or am I kind of like Peter before his conversion? Am I kind of like the guy who's walking around declaring a whole bunch of things but never following through with any of it? Or could you be one of the other camps and that is that you are convinced that you are a follower of Jesus, that you believe that your sins are forgiven, but when you really evaluate your life, there's really not a whole lot of gospel conversation there's not a whole lot of speaking of Jesus to people in situations that you find yourself in. And you know what? That's the work of the enemy because here's the thing. Once you are a believer and your sins have been forgiven, the enemy knows that he can't make you bad anymore. So what he's going to do is make you busy. And making you busy takes away the greatest element you have to offer the kingdom of God, which is your testimony. Because then what happens is you just keep getting caught up in life. You get caught up in growing your business or advancing your career, whether it's a sports-related career or a business-related career, or maybe it's just academics. Um, maybe you get distracted in relationships. You get distracted in hobbies. You get distracted with life, raising kids, raising grandkids, making your marriage work, whatever it may be. You just keep getting distracted with all of these things. And that's why Jesus is never coming out of your mouth, because you are so distracted away from your real purpose and the thing that you have to offer the kingdom of God more than anything, which is your availability. And, and availability really comes with this idea of awareness, of being aware day in and day out, being full of the scripture and being full of the spirit. Listen to me. It is not enough to be full of the scripture because you can be full of the scripture and not even be saved. I mean, think about the Pharisees. They knew everything about the Old Testament. They knew it backwards and forward, had memorized the whole thing and taught it to other people. And yet they missed the Messiah when he came. Why? They were full of scripture, but they weren't full of the spirit. Full of the scripture, full of the spirit leads to being full of Jesus. And that's the picture that we have painted for us here in this early on passage of the book of Acts. Here with Peter and the other apostles declaring these great wonders of God. Spurgeon once said it like this. We write Jesus' name upon our banner, for it is hell's terror it's heaven's delight and it's earth's hope. When you are convinced of that, you will find that your conversation keeps coming back to Christ. If you really believe that it is the gospel that is the greatest threat to hell, if you believe that it is truly heaven's delight and God rejoices and all of heaven rejoices when we share our testimony and people respond and they come out of their darkness and come out of their sin-infested lives to a life of forgiveness and restoration and a life of light, when you truly believe that the gospel is the only hope for earth, when that becomes your conviction, your words 
are always centered on Jesus. He's the only hope. And when we believe, truly believe, and are convicted that he's the only hope, it's amazing how often we'll talk about it. It's amazing how often we pray. It's amazing how often we'll see it in Scripture. It's amazing how often the Spirit of God opens our eyes to things that are happening around us for opportunities. And we don't have to be afraid, okay? We don't have to be afraid of like, oh, what if I mess up? What if I say something wrong? No, that's, that's the Spirit's part. It's not our efforts. It's His effort. It's us being available. Think about Peter here. There is the power of the Spirit of God that comes over him. Yes, no doubt. Okay? So the Peter's transformation is, is from the fact that he was without the Spirit, and now he's with the Spirit. But let's also notice that Peter's full of the Scripture as well. I mean, the Spirit is using what Peter has also dedicated himself to. These are verses that he's poured over. And Peter's, in essence, doing what he saw Jesus do. He's not just making this up off the fly, I don't believe. I don't believe that Peter's standing up there in a trance and he's speaking and all of a sudden connecting Old Testament scriptures to things he's never thought about before. No, I go back to the fact that Jesus had just spent 40 days with them. And what the scripture tells us is for those 40 days, Jesus kept revealing to them over and over again, this is me in the Old Testament. All of these passages, they were pointing to me. This is the fulfillment of that. You remember when I was talking with you about this? You remember when we were in Samaria? You remember when this happened on the cross? You remember when I said this, when I said that when these things happen, look in the Old Testament. This passage points to it. This passage points to it. This passage points to it. And Peter was listening, absorbing this. So when the opportunity came, he was full of the scripture and being full of the spirit, he was able to direct people straight to Jesus. That's the beauty of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a person who lives for something bigger than themselves. There's another strong picture of what the gospel is all about here, and that is especially the restoration that it affords in our relationship with God. Think about Peter's life for a moment. I know we've talked about this before, but briefly, I just want to point this out. Peter was one who just days, okay, we're talking about a month and a half earlier, was the one who said, Jesus, I would never, ever desert you. I would die for you, Peter. You'll deny me three times before the rooster even crows. Not me. I mean, all of these guys would probably do it, but not me. I mean, I, I would be the last one of anyone here that would ever do something like that. Man, there was just this boldness. There was this arrogance. There was this pride that he would look at the Savior of the world and say, No, you're wrong. You don't know me. That's not who I am. And then, of course, we know that Peter denies Christ. Peter is brought low. Peter weeps with this heavy sense of guilt and shame of not only what he did, but what he said he would never do and then did it. And then on the shores of Galilee, he sees Jesus. Jesus comes up to him there on the shores cooking some fish around a fire, the same place where, Jesus, or where Peter denies Jesus. And that's where he restores him. Three times he asks him, do you love me? And that was Peter's restoration. And then he calls him to be a leader. And then on Pentecost, he fills him. But how was he able to fill him? Here's how. Because he first had to be emptied. Until you're empty, you can never experience a filling of the Holy Spirit. 
You can never, ever do it. As long as you hold on to your arrogance, as long as you hold on to your pride, as long as you hold on to that image of, I've got things together. I don't really have a whole lot of problems. You haven't come to the end of yourself yet. But when you come to the end of yourself and you realize, I have nothing to offer God, that's when you are empty. That's when you're ready to be filled. And when you are filled, you see the same thing. You declare the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus. I remember um, a pastor in my home church that I grew up in. It was fascinating. I was a little boy at this time, but he was a pastor. He was probably there for about, I think, 13 to 17 years, roughly. But about three or four years into it, I remember him coming forward. And what a big deal it was that he got before the church and he admitted to the church that he realized in that past week that he had never really committed his life to Christ. He said, I've taught Bible studies, I've preached sermons, I've served in churches, and I came to this conclusion that I didn't know Jesus. I was full of pride. I was full of myself. And he said, this week, the Holy Spirit just grabbed me and brought me to the end of myself. And he said, I just want to confess to you in a sense of freedom that I have nothing to offer anyone. I've come to this incredible realization how beautiful the gospel is and how beautiful Jesus is. I remember as a little kid just being blown away by this. This guy was a pastor, and he's just now getting saved. And he got baptized, and he continued to be a pastor. Now, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, well, you know, he's just a new Christian. He shouldn't be a pastor. Um, I thought there was a lot of grace that was shown there as I, as an older guy reflecting back on that. I think it's beautiful that the church accepted him and embraced him and said, you know what, that's the kind of stories we want to hear. People being honest and see transformation, that even someone who's walked that was not ashamed to stand in front of body and say, I was a fraud for so long, and yet I want you to know that this is real what I've walked through. Man, it's something powerful when adults get saved. I don't know what it is about it, but it's just powerful. It's powerful when you see children get saved because I think it's a powerful testament and a lot of times to the parents or maybe coaches or teachers that poured into them. But when you see that, as beautiful as it is, there's something about a senior citizen who comes to the baptistry and gets baptized and makes a confession that they live their entire life without Christ. And here, in the waning years of their life, they came to the realization that Jesus is Lord, and they were not the least bit embarrassed to walk in front and say, I now know that I am for real. I'm a walking, believing, declaring Jesus follower. What a beautiful picture whenever we see all different age groups coming to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I want to take a quick look at the response to the crowd to Peter. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Neil made a great uh, connection back to that. It goes back to the passage of Joel where it says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Uh, I think this is beautiful. These people were cut to the heart, right? They saw this. They wanted to know what happens. And look, at this is where they asked the question. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I love the question. What shall we do? Uh, they started with, what does this mean? Peter says, here's what it means. They heard what it means. They said, now what shall we do? We believe you. We accept this. And Peter says, repent, be baptized, forgiveness of sins, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, number one, repentance is obvious, right? Repent of your 
arrogance. Repent of you holding on to your national heritage. Repent of the fact that you think just because you're children of Abraham, somehow you're in. Repent of your sins. Repentance is where it all starts. But notice he says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, for us, that's maybe not all that big a deal. We're like, yeah, I know people confess their sins and then you're baptized. Well, here's what's shocking. Jews didn't get baptized in that day and time. You know who got baptized? Converts. Gentiles who were converting to Judaism, they were the ones who got baptized because they believed that they had to be washed of all of their filth that they're coming from to be accepted into the Jewish people. Peter is talking to a mostly Jewish crowd here, and he says, you need to get baptized. Shocking. And yet, we didn't find in this passage that anyone revolted from that. That's what was so shocking about John the Baptist calling people to repent and be baptized was because he started this and people were shocked. The the Pharisees even were like, man, this is, why are you calling Jews to be baptized? Even though some of them actually followed through with it and John called them out. You're just coming here to please the crowd. You don't really mean this. But it was shocking for that to happen. But here we see that Peter calls them to repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus And then he says, when you repent and be baptized, then you have the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are denominations out there that really hold on to that. And they say, you know what? You got to be baptized to be saved. Peter says it right here. That's a good example of bad theology. Why? Because when you back up from it and you look at the whole of Scripture, Paul, Peter, and other places, and other New Testament writers, they talk about salvation without ever mentioning baptism. Paul is the one who says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you are saved. He never mentions baptism. So again, you can't create a theology out of one verse. Here's what we know about this passage is that Luke is pulling a whole bunch of, of, of Peter's sermon together and being concise and relaying what Peter said. Do you remember that part right there where he says, and many other words he spoke? So Luke is consolidating this longer sermon of Peter to a shorter condensed version. It'd be like you taking what we said today, going out and sharing it with a friend. You wouldn't share it in its totality, but you would share the main points that hit you the most and you would be relating it to it, right? That's what Luke is doing here. He's relaying the the heart of Peter's sermon here. So you can't put it all. He's saying, hey, Peter made a big deal of repentance and baptism. Now, why would he mention those two? Here's why. Go back to the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay? They're connected to one another. And the reason Peter says this is whenever you walked into the temple, what's the first thing you come to? The altar of sacrifice. What happens there? Sacrifice for your sins. What's the very next thing you come to? The brazen, the brazen uh, laver. What is it used for? For washing the priest before they walked into the holy place. What Peter is relating to is saying, hey, the Old Testament was already prefiguring this. There has to be a sacrifice of sins, and there has to be a washing of your soul before you can enter into the service of God. What are they all looking at? People who are being used in the service of God. That's what's being revealed here, and I love this picture. Now look at the last part. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Remember that. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 
souls. Now, you can sit there and go, wow, that's so amazing. 3,000 souls, that blows my mind. 3,000 people were added that day. The church started with 3,000 people. You can make a big deal about that, but what you should do if you're paying attention is say this, huh, why does he tell us 3,000 people? Does 3,000 ever show up anywhere else? And you would be rewarded for your good question asking. And you would remember back, and you know, I remember Jack and Neil, when we were teaching through the book of Exodus, making a big deal about 3,000 back there. What was that? Of course, you would be a good student. You'd turn back in those lengthy notes that you've been taking, and you would look back to your study in Exodus chapter 32, and you would be studying about when the law of God was given to Moses, and he was bringing it down the mountain, and he saw the people engulfed in this rebellion as they had created an idol with all the gold they had brought out of Egypt. And they were worshiping this calf, saying, this is the God who delivered us from Egypt. And Moses was so angry, he threw the tablets down, and he broke them. And he was so enraged, he comes down there, and he goes, what is this you have defied? You crooked generation. I don't think Moses uses that exact word, but he calls them even worse than that, okay? But he basically says, this is a crooked generation. And then he comes down, he makes a declaration. He says, everyone who is on the side of the Lord, come stand with me. And then the Levites were the first ones to come and stand with him. And after everyone had an opportunity to come and stand with him, there were actually people who did not walk across and said, no, we don't stand with you. And Moses looked at the Levites and said, I want you to go kill all of them. Verse 28, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men fell. When the law came, it brought death. When the Spirit came, it brought life. Do you see the difference? When the law came, there's no way we can keep this law. There's no way we're ever going to live up to this standard. 3,000 men died the day the law came down the mountain because they were in full rebellion against it. Moses says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. If you're with God, come stand with me. 3,000 people die. Peter stands full of the Spirit. The Spirit has come down and indwelt him, and he begins to proclaim the great miracles and wonders of God. People said, what shall we do? Believe, repent, be baptized, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that day, 3,000 people believed, repented, were baptized, and walked from death to life. The law brings death, but the law is still good because the law tells us who God is. The law tells us his holiness and righteousness, but it also reminds us you'll never, ever make it on your own. The law brings us low, and the Spirit fills us when we are most empty to make us useful for the kingdom of God and give us a value that can never be taken away by this world. Anything that we would ever go through in this world, the Spirit brings life. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of the power of your gospel, the simplicity and the profoundness blows us away when we consider all that's entailed with it and that you went through such great measures and paid such a great price to redeem us, to make us whole. Lord, the least we can do is to live for something bigger than this world around us.
So Lord, for those who don't know you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open their eyes and today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day they would repent and be baptized and be brought in. And Lord, for those who already know and have been forgiven, but yet they live a distracted life, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help them to see those distractions, help them eliminate them one by one so that they can live for something bigger than themselves, bigger than just an earthly legacy, a godly legacy, an eternal legacy that lasts forever. May our stories be woven in to those of the ancients and those who will come after us to create this incredible tapestry to your goodness, your grace, your gospel, and your love. In Jesus' name.